Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit LifePointPB.com. Welcome back, church. It's Sunday, May the 17th, and this is episode 16 of House to House. Glad you're with us today. And if you've been paying attention, you have noticed on the news, like I have, what's happening in the job market. Um, it is, it's crazy out there. I mean, <clears throat> the numbers right now are 15% unemployment, which is as high as it's been since the Great Depression. Some economists say it's actually higher than that because the system ha- can't keep up with what's going on right now. But regardless, it is, it's severe, as severe as we've seen it in, in quite a long time. And as we look at that and think about it, you sometimes wonder, well, does God have anything to say about the job market? Does he have anything to say about employment? He does. And I'm amazed at how he orchestrates what we're going to talk about. When we began, when I began praying about Ephesians two years ago, I had no idea what was going to be happening right now. You had no idea. I had no idea that on this day, May 17th, we would get to the section of scripture that talks about employees and employers. But the Lord knew. He times all of that. So I look forward to getting into it with you here in just a moment. In the meantime, though, I want to stop before we begin. I want to pray because some of you have lost jobs or you've lost revenue or you're not sure whether you'll continue to have a job. There are pressures and things that come with that. And so I want to just take a moment and pray for you. And I'm going to ask others if right now you're, you're fairly secure in your job as far as you know, then you take a moment and pray with me for those who aren't as secure in there. They don't know what tomorrow may bring. So, Lord, we do. We lift up right now within our body those who have lost jobs, a couple that I'm aware of. Um, Lord, there may be others that I'm unaware of. Those who have have lost um, income because their their hours have been cut. Lord, there are others who they're not sure if they'll have a job next month. They're not sure if they'll be able to go back to a job that they've been furloughed from. And so, Lord, I pray right now that you would be their peace you would be their comfort, and you would remind all of us, no matter who we are or what our situation, that you are our provider. Not a company, not the federal government. You are our provider. God, would you remind us? Would you give us comfort in that? Would you remind us of how you have always provided for us, that you are Jehovah Jireh, and you will not stop being Jehovah Jireh, even in the midst of a pandemic? So, Lord, we commit, we, we commit ourselves to you, and we pray for those right now who are struggling in a special way when it comes to jobs. And, and the economy. Lord, thank you that you are walking with us through it. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back, church. Turn with me, if you're not already there, Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 9 today. And as, as verse 5 begins, it says, bond servants, literally slaves. Now, again, you may think um, that your job, that you're in servitude at your job or a slave. Probably not. Uh, most of us don't have that experience. But remember when Paul is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, half, it's estimated that half of the Roman Empire were slaves. All right? Half of the world's population of the known world at that time were in slavery. And it was really slavery. It was not, I have a, I have a bad job, I have a job I don't love, I have a boss who's a jerk. No, they really did have bosses who were jerks often, and they were in servitude. Now, when we look at this, it doesn't apply the same way to us because we're not in slavery. 
But there are some similarities in the sense that we do, we are willing, we voluntarily give our time, our talent, our abilities to an employer for something in return. And in a real sense, we basically sell ourselves to them. We, not in the same way as a slave, not, not into slavery, but we are giving them something for what they are paying. And so we can take and apply these things that we learn here from the Apostle Paul in our own situations. Now, he says, bond servants, here's the ask. And in this, you're going to have an ask. You're going to have the opposite of that ask, and then you're going to have a promise. And you're going to see that both for employees and employers. Here's the ask. Here's what God's doing in your life and in my life if we are a follower of Jesus Christ and we're working for someone. He says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Obey. I don't like that word. Uh, it's the same word that's used in, in verse 1 of the same chapter, talking to children, obey your parents. It is the same word. It's a military term. It means you hear commands, you line up under, you execute those commands. So this is the idea. Your boss asks you to do something, you do that. You say, well, duh, Troy. I, I don't, I'm not sure that that's always a duh. I'm not sure that we always understand that. We, we live in a different country, in a different age, a different mindset. But this is how this role works. And as a believer, when we're asked, we obey. Now, there are exceptions to that. We don't obey unlawful ask. If someone asks us to break the law, we wouldn't obey that. If someone asks us to do something immoral that violates our conscience, we wouldn't necessarily do that either. We, that would be a situation for an appeal. And at some point, probably the next week, I'm going to talk to you about what a biblical appeal looks like because we need to understand that. But in general, general cases, most of the time, we're not being asked to break the law. We're not being asked to violate our conscience. We may be asked to do something we don't want to do or don't like, and that's okay. We obey. Now, it says here with fear and trembling. I want you to understand something. The fear and trembling is not to your employer. You're not to be in fear and trembling of your employer. You're in fear and trembling of Christ. Because it goes on to say, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. The reason we know this, Paul writes almost an exact rep, uh, a repeat or repetition of this verse in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. But there, at the end of that verse, where he goes through the same things he's saying here, he adds this. He says, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The fear is not to your employee. The reverence that we give is first and foremost to Christ, a singleness or a single-minded heart toward the Lord. I'm working for Jesus. No matter what I'm doing, no matter who I'm working for, ultimately as a believer, I'm working for Jesus Christ. And because of the respect and the honor that I give him and the follow, following his commands in my life, it then produces an honor and respect that I give to my employee or my employer. And as I, I learn how to do this with the Lord, then it, it overflows in my life and out of my life toward the one that I'm working for. Let me show you something else that's important about this fear and trembling. Paul uses this phrase again in one of my favorite passages. It's, it's kind of, I would say it's one of my life verses. Um, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There's, a, there's an application of this to what we're talking about right now. 
This fear and trembling is awareness that there is a world system, there is man's wisdom, there's a philosophy of the culture that we're in, and it's contrary to the kingdom of God and the way Jesus thinks and the way that he operates. And what Paul said, I wanted to come to you and I didn't want to impress you with man's wisdom. I didn't want to impress you with the philosophies of this world. I did not want to operate the same way that the kingdom around me operates because I'm part of a different kingdom. But the reason I didn't want to do that is because I wanted you to have clear demonstration of the Holy Spirit at work in my life and His power working through my life so that your faith would rest, your belief would rest in God and Him alone, not the things around us that we see. We wouldn't trust in anything or anyone but God. This is true for us as we're working. We want the Spirit of God to work through us as an employee so that all around us will be able to say, you know what? What you do doesn't make sense compared to what everybody else does or what everybody else is saying. And yet I see the evidence of something I can't explain in your life, in your circumstance, in your situation. And then we're able to say yes, because this is what Jesus does. This is who he is. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The opportunity to do that for most of us will come more often than not in the workforce when we're around people who don't believe the same way we do. So I encourage you in this. God has a plan. He has a way that he wants this to work out. Now, here's the opposite. That's the ask, okay, that we are to obey with fear and trembling the Lord first, and then that applies to our employer and so that he, can, so that he and others can see the difference. But notice what the opposite is. How do I know if I'm not doing this? I think I might be serving the Lord most with, out of a sincerity, out of a singleness of heart. But how do I know for sure? Well, here's the opposite of doing that, so you'll know. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers. Do you do your best work only when someone's watching over your shoulder? When the boss comes in, you do your best work. When he's not around, eh, who will know? Who will care? He's a jerk anyway. I deserve a little break. You know, th this, this is an indicator that I do eye service. I only work hard. I only give my best when someone is watching. He says there's another way to know this. Are you a people pleaser? Now, it's not wrong to want to please your boss, okay? If you got an, a merit review and you did exceptionally well and you got a raise or you got congratulations or whatever, you don't think, oh, no, I'm not serving God. No, that's not what that means, okay? You can be praised by your boss. You can do well and please your boss, but it's not your number one goal. That's what he's saying. Your number one goal is to please the Lord because if your number one goal is to please your boss, then there may be things that he asks you to do that would not please your Lord. And so you're caught Whatever is first in your life and my life, and we've talked about this all year long, whatever's first orders everything else in our life. If Jesus is first, then your employer falls into his proper place or her proper place underneath the Lord Jesus Christ. So I can please them. I want to please them, and many times I will please them, but that's not my number one goal. And only you know, you and the Holy Spirit, only you know what's in your heart. If why, what you do and why you work the way you work is simply for the praise of man. The scripture says in Proverbs that the fear of man, the desire just for man's approval, brings a snare. I don't want that for you. I don't want it for me. Now, that's the opposite. Here's the promise. Good. By the way, the rest of that verse goes back to the thought we had before. Verse 7 says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So again, Jesus is first. Now here's the promise. Verse 8 knowing that whatever good anyone does, 
This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Whether he is a slave or whether he's free. Whether he's the employee or the employer, it doesn't matter. The Lord says, when you line your life up like this, when I'm first, when I am your master, when I am the one that you give service to, and you do all of your work as unto me, I reward that. I see it. Now, does he reward it? You say, well, does that mean I'm going to get the promotion I want or the salary I want? He rewards. He doesn't say here how he's going to reward, simply that he rewards. I can tell you from personal experience, I have seen it over and over again in my own life. At times where the Lord challenged me in this, are you going to serve me? And you're going to serve with your whole heart? Because I have had some jerks as bosses. We all, if you've had very many jo- jobs in your life, you've had a jerk somewhere along the way. I've had several. And in each one, the Lord has challenged me. Am I going to serve as unto the Lord? Not to him, not to her, but to the Lord. And then to watch him move and provide in my life and to work in ways to give opportunity that I never expected. The Lord rewards. It's a promise. You can take it to the bank. Now, somebody says, Troy, you don't understand. You're a pastor. You work in a church. It's perfect there. All the people are perfect. You know, it's great. It's not like where I work. Well, first of all, it's not perfect anywhere. Anywhere there are people, even believing people, it's not perfect. But I do understand there are differences in what I do every day and what many of you are doing and the environments in which we do it. I do understand there's a difference. But I have worked in those same environments. I know. I spent a lot of years working in those environments. And you say, Troy, it does not work. I mean, that's just not how the world works, not how the system works. I get that. God has a different system. Isaiah 55 is a tremendous verse. I would encourage you to memorize it. In Isaiah 55, he says to us, My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Even as the heaven is higher than the earth, are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. When God calls us to do something, it rarely makes sense, humanly speaking. And yet, he does something that only he can do. Now, when we started this, we talked about slavery that half of the known world, when Paul's writing this, are in slavery. Half of the Roman Empire are enslaved. That's not true anymore. There is still slavery that happens today. There's still human trafficking that goes on, but legal slavery has been outlawed. As far as I know, everywhere in the world, there is no legal slavery that takes place. There's some illegal slavery that takes place. And and there are some 30 million people, uh, it's estimated, that are being trafficked uh, around the world today. But I want to put that in perspective. As horrible as that is, if we had half of the world's population in slavery today, we would be talking about nearly 4 billion people being enslaved. To compare the numbers to what was happening when Paul was writing this, this is a fraction of that's less than 1% that are actually experiencing that. So for all intents and purposes, slavery as it was in that day has been vanquished. It has been done away. And again, that doesn't mean we don't focus on human trafficking and want to deal with that. But what he's talking about doesn't exist today. Why? There are a lot of speculation, a lot of reasons given for that. But I love what Edward Gibbons, the great British historian, wrote. He did this classic work called The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. And I want to read to you what he said because when we think that what God asks us to do doesn't work, I want you to hear this. While that great body, the Roman Empire, was 
invaded by open violence or undermined by slow decay. A pure and humble religion gently insinuated itself into the minds of men. I love that. Uh, uh, Eugene Peterson would call that subversive. He says Christianity is subversive. Grew up in silence and obscurity. Derived new vigor from opposition and finally erected the triumphant banner of the cross on the ruins of the capital. That's exactly what happened. Christ, his kingdom, advances and marches on. His ways don't seem to make sense, and they certainly don't line up with this kingdom, but they produce lasting, eternal fruit. And so I want to remind you of that in your job, in your situation right now, whatever it may look like, who do you serve? Why don't you take a moment right now before you worship, before we go on, would you ask the Lord, do I do eye service? Am I only working hard when somebody's watching? And am I a man pleaser or a woman pleaser? Am I only doing this so I can get the praise of man? I'll ask you another question in all of this. Am I only doing this so I can get a paycheck? Because if I am, then the paycheck is my Lord, not Jesus. I do all that I do because Jesus is my Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit to search, to show you, is there an area of my employment where I'm not, I'm not serving you as Lord. I'm serving someone or something else. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back. We want to take a minute and talk in verse 9 about employers. Now, you'll notice something. We had all these verses, 5, 6, 7, and 8, about employees and all the instruction that's given there. And then one verse for employers. It's like, Lord, that doesn't seem fair or right. I'll, I'll share with you some ideas of why I think the Lord did that here in just a minute. But let's look at what he said. There's the ask, there's the opposite, and there's a promise, just like we had uh, in the previous section, but now it's all in one verse. The ask is this. Masters, do the same to them. That's the ask. Same what? What we've just read about. You're serving Christ first and foremost, no matter whether you're the employer or the employee. You're serving Christ. He is number one. He is your Lord and Master. And because you're serving Him, it changes the way that you relate to your employees. And so you're going to show respect to them. You're going to have care for them. Why? Because your Lord and Master has care for them. And so he says, just like they need to serve Christ first, and as a result, they're going to respect you. They're going to do what you ask of them. Uh, You're going to do the same thing. You're going to serve Christ first. And though you're not necessarily doing exactly what they ask of you, you are listening to them. You are hearing their needs. You are finding out. One of the things that I learned years ago, and it was taught to me, and it was very helpful, is as often as possible, when I ask somebody to do something, I tried to have done it first, and, or at least enter into it in some way with them, because I have an understanding of what it is I'm asking. Sometimes we make asks that are unrealistic. They're, they're not attainable, or it's impossible to do them in the amount of time that we expected them to be done. That's happened even sometimes, even in what we're doing right now. I had to ask Victoria, how long do you spend after we leave, after the recording, working on this? I had no idea. And quite honestly, I don't want to find out because this isn't something I want to do. It's something she does really, really well. I was shocked when she told me how much time it takes that you don't see. It's not part of this recording. It's important for us to understand what we're asking people to do who serve and who work for us and work with us. He says, make sure that you operate the same way that employees are expected to operate. 
Christ first, that influencing everything else, every attitude, every action that we have. Now, what's the opposite? Stop threatening. That's what he says. Do not manipulate your employees. Do not hold something over their head in a threatening manner to try to motivate them to do more. Do not manipulate them. Uh, do not use fear as a motivational tactic. You say, well, Troy, what if they're doing something wrong? Well, obviously, correction is always needed. You can come along and say, you know, you're doing it this way. I'm not sure that's the best way. I'm trying to understand why you're doing it that way. Why would you not do it this way? You have a conversation. And then you may ultimately have to say, you know, I know you'd rather do it this way. This is the way that it needs to be done. That's part of the relationship. But it's done with grace. It's done with kindness. It's, there's a humility in it. Um, there is not fear. There is not manipulation. There's not an oppressiveness about it because the Lord never operates that way. We, it's really, really important as we do this because sometimes we think, well, if I make them afraid, they'll work better. It has not been my experience that anybody works well under fear. Um, they, they do need motivation. We all need motivation. And that motivation helps us in different ways. But motivation is different than manipulation. Never get the two confused. Now he goes on and he says, here's the promise. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven is in heaven. He says, I don't want you to forget anything. You have the same Lord. You may have a different position here on earth, but you both have the same Lord. And in that, you're equal. You have the same place. And that there is no partiality with him. No partiality with our Lord. He loves your employee as much as he loves you. And he loves you as much as he loves them. He has a plan for them just like he has a plan for you. He has good for them just like he has good for you. If something is good for you but not for your employees, it's probably not from the Lord. Because what he wants to do is to bless both you and them. Now, why is there so much more instruction to employees than to employers? I think it's twofold. Number one, or at least two things, there may be more, at least two. One is he's already spent all this time in the previous three or four verses giving all this instruction. And basically, it's verse 9, he says, ditto. You know, what, what I just said there goes to you as well. There's no reason to repeat it because he's already said it. He's already laid it out and it's right there. It's in the context. It's close. Uh, it's fresh on your mind. But here's the other reason, and this is what I have learned through the years. In order to be a godly employer, you must learn to be an ingod a godly employee. The training ground for being a good employer happens by being a good employee. Many people say, well, if I were the boss, things would be different. And I would say to you, if you don't learn how to be a good employee, you won't make a good boss. Because the reality is the lessons that you learn, the way that you learn to trust the Lord, the way you learn to hear and listen, the way he does something internally in you and transforming you from the inside out, the way he humbles you, the way he allows you to see what other people have to go through. So you're sensitive to other people's needs. All of these things make you a better employer. And so the reason that less is said here is God's already said, let me take you through the training, through my school. This is my, this is my university for being a boss. Learn how to be a good employee. Now, it's challenging in this day and age. To be an employee, to be an employer, um, to own your own business, or to have people who work for you, there are challenges that you face in this day that are unique, um, maybe more so than any other day. But the Lord doesn't address any of those. He simply says, 
You make me boss and Lord. Always recognize that. I'll give you wisdom what you need to do in your business or for those who work for you or report to you. I'll give you the direction that you need. It's vitally important that we learn to do this. I would say, and I'm going to repeat it. I said it a moment ago, but I'm going to say it again as we take just a break here. If what is good for you isn't good for your employee, you may want to reconsider if God is actually doing it. Now, are there times where you have to make decisions that your employees don't understand? I'm sure there are. Are there even times where you might have to lay people off or, and you say, well, that's not a good thing for that. I get all of that. But in general, in our day-to-day operation and how we operate and the atmosphere in which we operate under, what's going to be good for you should also be good for them. And the Lord often will do that. Think about them. I can remember situations in my life where I did not have great bosses for whatever reason. Some of them were lost. Some of them were pagans. Uh, Some of them were believers. And it still wasn't good. Uh, Part of that was me. Part of that was I didn't know how to be a good employee. And so there was a work, a transforming work that God was doing. But here's the other thing that I've realized. Now that I have more of an opportunity to have people that I'm responsible for and people who report to me, is that I've learned some things to do from good employers through the years. Here's some things that I want to do when I'm relating to people who report to me. And here's some things from the bad ones I don't want to do. Either situation is an opportunity for me to learn. That's the reason I say it's God's university. It's an opportunity to learn. I learn what to do. I learn what not to do. But both help me and make me a better leader. So why don't you take a moment. If you're an employer, you have people who report to you. Why don't you ask the Lord, say, Lord, is there anything you want to reveal to me right now that would make me a better leader, would make me look more like you in the way that I lead those who report to me? And then we'll be back in just a few minutes. Have you ever heard of Alexander Solzhenitsyn? If you haven't, it may be a couple things. One, you're too young, because those who are younger probably haven't heard of him. Uh, there could be other reasons. You may, it may have been you never went to Russia either. Having spent a little time, I spent almost a year in Russia, and he is honored greatly there. But really around the world, he was actually a Nobel winner for literature in 1970. Alexander was born in 1918, and a year after the Bolshevik Revolution and what we now, or what we came to know as the Soviet Union, that's when Lenin came to power. And he grew up in that. He was born into it, grew up in it, embraced it completely. He was a young communist, part of the Young Communist Party. He was an atheist. He, um, he joined the Red Army, um, it was promoted in, in the, the Army, did extremely well, became a captain. In World War II, he served as a captain there, was honored on several occasions, different medals he was given for valor. But at the end of the war, something happened that changed the course of Alexander's life. He was there in Berlin after the, the Red Army had come in, and the order came from the top, all the way from Stalin, that the Germans should be punished. And the way that the army, one of the ways the army could punish the Germans is they could rape women and children uh, and torture them. And that this would be proper recourse for all that the Germans had put the Russians through. And uh, Alexander obviously thought this was wrong. He did not agree with it. And he said so publicly, and which was, well, I was going to say a mistake. It was a mistake to speak out against tyranny. But it did cost him. 
And so he was taken for the next decade. He was sent to a gulag, which is a, a Russian labor camp, um, concentration camp. And there he, for the first time, was around other believers. He was not a believer, but he was around believers, other Christians. He noticed something about them. He noticed that they did not buy into the philosophy of the camp. They didn't think the same way as other prisoners. They didn't bully. They didn't steal. They didn't lie. They didn't cheat. They didn't, do, they didn't trade in other people in order to get favors uh, or betray people. Even people who were not Christians, they would not do that to. He said literally some of them starved to death. It cost them food out of their mouth because they would not become part of the camp system. But he said, I recognized in them something amazing. They knew why they were there. He said, it amazed me. They weren't there because they were religious. They weren't there because they were political prisoners. They weren't there because they wouldn't do what Stalin or others ask of them. They were there because the Lord Jesus Christ was their Lord. And it was an opportunity for him to work in them and through them to advance his kingdom. He said, this belief changed everything for them in the camp. And it changed, it changed Alexander as well. It is there that he came to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Afterward, he would write about his experiences in the camps, wrote a, a, a seminal work um, called the uh, Gulag Archipelago, um, and just talking about his experiences there. But there are two quotes that I think are very important for us to understand as we talk about being an employee and an employer, we talk about market economies, we talk about um, the society in which we live. This first one applies directly to that. The strength or weakness of a society depends more on the level of its spiritual life than on the level of its industrialization. Neither a market economy nor even general abundance constitutes the crowning achievement of human life. If a nation's spiritual energies have been exhausted, it will not be saved from collapse by the most perfect government structure or by any industrial development. A tree with a rotten core cannot stand. He's right. And that is a challenge, an encouragement to me and to you as believers in this country that we love, that we want to be salt and light. We want to have an impact and an influence to, to advance the kingdom, God's kingdom, in the, in the midst of this kingdom that's totally contrary to God. And your workplace may be like that. It may be a kingdom totally contrary to the kingdom of God, and yet you are salt and light in that place. You are a missionary. You are an ambassador in that place, and God wants to use you that way. Here's the second one. This is my favorite quote of Alexander. Bless you, prison. Bless you for being in my life. For there, lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity, as we are made to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. He's absolutely right. And though I would choose prosperity, and you probably would as well, what's most valuable, what's eternally valuable, is the maturity of our soul. It's the work that God does to transform you and me from the inside out. In that place where we learn to have love, even when we're not loved in return, where we have joy when there's no reason for joy, when we're at peace, when all the world's in chaos, when we have hope and faith and trust, when we're able to communicate to others value and respect and honor, even at times when they're not acting honorably. These are things that the Holy Spirit's able to do within us that, quite honestly, someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit can't do. 
And so you and I have this opportunity to take what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 6, allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in us that changes the world. It literally changes the world. I love what I do. I am called to do what I do. But I spend most of my time with other believers. And usually even there among believers who want to grow in Christ, who want to be closer to Him. I love that. I love what I do. But I have great respect for you because you go out every day into places which are antichrist, where His kingdom is not honored and certainly not sought. And you have the opportunity, the privilege of God transforming you in that situation, being a light set on the hill that draws many to Him and who He is. God bless you. Grace and peace.